Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Dr John Hammond. Last week John told us about his professional life in retirement. Today I'll be talking with John about growing up in Malaysia and his personal conversion and spirituality amongst other things. John will also tell us a couple of his favourite stories. For those who missed the conversation last week, here's a brief profile of Dr John. John retired in 2010 after 41 years of continuous service for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has been a teacher, school principal, college lecturer, college president and education director for the church at conference and union levels. He's also been a graduate supervisor at Massey University, where he completed a PhD in geography. From 2001 to 2010, John was the National Director, Adventist Schools Australia. John is married to Sue and they have three married children and four grandchildren. In 2006, John nearly died after breaking his neck and back and spent a long time in a coma and many months in hospital. John has also travelled extensively in remote Australia and his hobby is making quality knives. He's a much sought-after speaker and storyteller and is equally at home in front of an audience or alone in his workshop. Welcome, John. Thank you, Barry. Lovely to be here. Thanks for joining me again. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation last time and I look forward to speaking with you again. John, tell me where you were born and where did you grow up? I was born in Sydney at the uh, Royal Hospitals for Women in Paddington. For a while there I thought I should have been born in a man's hospital, but I learnt better. But my first four years, uh, our hometown was Kempsey in the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Why Kempsey? Uh, my dad had a practice there and uh, was surgeon to a practice. And uh, when I was four, he got a call to go to Jamaica. And uh, he, he turned it down because he had a new house, a new car, three small boys. And uh, then he said to my mother a few months later, if they ever call again, I think we should go. And uh, we got a call to go again to Jamaica. And just before leaving, uh, the church asked us instead to go to Penang in uh, Malaya, as it was then. And uh, my father said yes. And then he uh, said, why? He should have asked it the other way around. And I said, well, the doctor has left uh, quickly uh, because there was a war going on. Um, called it became known as the Communist Terrorist Emergency or the Emergency. And uh, every European head on the island was worth uh, $5,000 attached or otherwise. And uh, so Dad took a gulp and uh, this, he said, is there anything else? And they said, well, actually, we have a bit of a plague with snakes at present. Uh, poisonous ones, uh, well, they're cobras, which are aggressive and poisonous. And uh, so with those uh, cheerful words, we flew by Constellation and got to Singapore and up to Penang on the 4th of October, 1949. Now, we um, have a promise from you that you're going to tell us a story. Yeah. And I think this is probably an appropriate place for you to tell the first story. Well, we arrived at our house at 22 Brown Road um, on the outskirts of... Uh, the town or city and the hospital was about a kilometre away and uh, I know the experience of being a brand new missionary and my parents would have had the same feeling all was strange we arrived at night time jungle noises oppressive heat uh, 
and we slept after a fashion. Being a small boy, I slept like a log. And early in the morning, my father opened the back door to get a breath of fresh air, barefoot, and he put his foot onto the back of a 13-foot hammer dryer or a king cobra. And uh, he felt this thing writhe and wriggle, and he slammed the door so fast, he nearly left his foot outside. And, and that's one of my early memories of Penang, was Dad's hand shaking and his voice quavering, informing my mother not to unpack anything that we were returning to Australia tomorrow on the first flight. And uh, with that, we sat down and had breakfast, and uh, he was probably reflecting on the return missionary stories he'd be able to tell after being a missionary for 18 hours. And uh, anyone who knew my father knew that he, he never really lacked indecision. And he thought hard during breakfast, and he said to my mother, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have prayer, and then I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm just going to open it anywhere and shove my thumb in, and if there is not a message from God under my thumb, then we'll go home. Simple as that. And so we did. It was a good prayer. And uh, knowing that whatever was going to be under his thumb would uh, significantly alter their lives for the rest of their lives, he opened his Bible, and under his thumb was a text that he'd never read before. That was Luke 10, verse 19. And uh, I noticed you looking at me as, as I say this, I don't need to look it up because it became our family's favorite text. This is what it said. He'd never read it before. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And he looked at my mother and he said, I think we have to stay. Well, we were there for 12 years. And in that 12 years, we killed 12 cobras in the bathroom alone, not the rest of the house. I mean, one came under the... Uh, the dining room table while we were having Sunday lunch. Dad was in the middle of an operation at the hospital and we cleared off and rang the hospital. He left the patient in an anesthetic state for uh, an ethanized state for 10 minutes, came home, got rid of the snake, went back and finished it. Uh, we were never bitten. Mind you, we got chased, um, but we were never bitten. I still don't put on shoes until I click the heels together in case there's a scorpion inside. We were never stung. But the second part of the text, and over the power of the enemy, um, all the Europeans on the island, or most of them, had 1940 model Fords with half ton of armor plate and just a little hole in the windscreen. But the, uh, the terrorists would chop a tree down in front on a jungle track and then chop a tree down behind, and without air conditioning, you had to get out. And they would just shoot you. And one of their favorite tricks was to sneak into the town and knock on a door in the middle of the night. And when you open the door, just shoot you dead. And uh, one night at about two o'clock, we got that knock. And Dad went to the door. He stood behind a pillar. And he asked in English, who is it? And in Malay and Chinese and Tamil. And finally, a voice said, uh, doctor, we have a sick man. And every doctor who's taken the Hippocratic Oath will, will go and do their best. And he opened that door wondering whether it was his last moment here on earth. And there were two men there. And uh, they, uh, they, he said, where's the sick man? Oh, in the car on the road. Now, that to Dad was one of the longest walks in his life. It was only a few meters. 
but he believed he was walking into a trap. But he went out, and on the back seat was a man nigh unto death, and he had a ruptured appendix. And he said, why didn't you take him to the government hospital? They said, they sent us away. He said, quickly go to the, our hospital and uh, we'll be there. And he followed in his car, operated, saved the man's life, kept him in hospital for three weeks. He'd never heard of Christ, but he gave him uh, Chinese copies of uh, Signs of the Times mm -hmm. and never charged him anything. And the man went home and uh, we heard nothing more about it until the day before we left the country. Uh, 12 years later, there was a knock on the door and, and Dad had already left. He, he was in Australia and there was a Chinese man at the door. It was quite safe. The emergency was over. And he asked if he could speak to Dr. Hammond and I said, oh, he's back in Australia. He asked if he could speak to my mother. So I said, Lai Chapeng, come in. He asked if she could remember this incident of the sick man and she couldn't. And he said, do you know who that man was? And uh, even now the name's man is sensitive. Any person, any Malaysian would know that this man was in charge of all the communist terrorists and a fearsome man. And uh, it was him. And then he held out a piece of paper, just about A5. There was our photo, photo of our car and its number, P5104, and the five of us. And there was a message in Chinese and Malay. And uh, it said that this family is not to be touched, not to be harmed in any way. And this was a message distributed to every communist terrorist camp from Johor in the south to the Siamese border. And so it was just the day before we left, God opened the window of heaven just a fraction to let us peek in and see how we had been protected. One of the big regrets of my life, being a collector of eclectic bits and pieces, was I didn't keep that piece of paper. Mm. And it was signed by order. This is my personal protection. And so on the strength of that, we lived in Malaya for 12 years. That story's pretty hard to beat, John. It's true. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Tell me about other members of your family. I've got a profile of your dad already. <laughs> he was uh, an orthopedic surgeon. Um, he brought the uh, current technology, or was current, in the 1960s in hip replacement surgery. He worked with Sir John Charnley at the Centre for Hip Surgery in England. Uh, Sir John wanted Dad to succeed him, but he wanted to come back to Australia. Uh, he became the original hippie doctor, and he replaced over 4,000 hips uh, prior to his death and uh, I have a brother who's also Dr. Brian Thomas Hammond but he's a radiologist that's caused a few confusions um, I must admit that uh, there's an, in, uh, too many doctors in the family because my son is also a doctor uh, he's up in Queensland um, but uh, dad always believed that his uh, 12 years in the mission field as a general surgeon uh, gave him wonderful experience. In fact, when he did his fellowship at the Royal College of Surgeons in England, he flew through and I think he was one of three out of about 400 who passed on their first attempt. Mm. What about your mum? My mother was Scottish, came out when she was 12, never lost her accent, and she was a Howie. Anyone who knows the Howies knows that they're all lateral thinkers. 
and uh, she was the perfect foil for my father, who was a brilliant lateral uh, uh, linear thinker. He didn't have terribly much perception about people, but my mother was an absolute lateral thinker and knew people, and people suggested I might be a combination of the two. I hope it's a good combination. Tell me about your brothers. Uh, Brian's a radiologist. Is he the older? Or? He's my older. Mum had three boys in three years. And uh, so my younger brother, Gordon, uh, who was an Adventist minister for 17 years, and he's worked in psychology and photography since then. Um, there's only 10 months between us, so I have a, a twin brother for two months of the year. I don't come much closer than that. What was the impact of being number two in these in these three boys? I think, well, there was no literature written on uh, childbirth order in those days, but... Uh, looking back, uh, if I want to view my life with with a degree of self-pity, then I could say I was a classic case. Uh, I also accept the fact that I must have been a difficult kid at times. Uh, a middle child survives in different ways. And I'm sure there are many middle children uh, listening at this moment saying, hmm, I can identify with that. But uh, we had a very cosmopolitan upbringing, went to many schools and in different countries. And uh, I just look at the whole thing as a preparation for what God wanted. I'm always conscious of the fact that God probably picked me out uh, many generations before I was born. I mean, the, the Bible tells us that even under the 10th generation, he's looking and he's knowing. Hmm. What was it like growing up? in an Islamic culture? We had to be very careful. Um, the Islamics uh, that we grew up with were, were very gentle people. Um, and I've always had no problem uh, visiting and, and dwelling amongst because uh, I, I say to them, our Sabbath follows right after yours. And so we're all getting in the mood about the same time and, and uh, our holy day starts on Friday evening and I'd love to come and eat at your place because we don't uh, eat unclean food and that warms them up but um, there is also a belief among thinking Muslim theologians that uh, the Seventh-day Adventist belief structure is uh, more accepting and tolerant of Muslim beliefs and more in tune to what they are trying to do. There are many, many good Muslims. How long were you in Malaysia? I think you said 12 yeah, years. Yeah, 12 years. And from what age were you? You were about 4. 4 to 16. 4 to 16, yeah. yeah. You've told me about your experience at school previously, and you've also told us about your, um, your school experience with, with Mr Boyle. Mm. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about your personal conversion when, uh, from the age of about uh, eight or nine, I was uh, always thinking about baptism. I enjoyed going to church, uh, and there was something about being part of a church community that always appealed to me. When I was going through the difficult teenage years, my parents were wise enough to let me fully participate uh, in the local youth scene at the church. And um, so I went to Pathfinders and I'd go to the pastor's house and I had a, a wonderful uh, 
Chinese pastor who retired and is buried here in, in Kurumbong, Pastor Chong, Chong Tat Kong, and his wife and family, uh, and a child giving their, their life to God uh, can only see God through the eyes of uh, their own perception of human beings who represent God. And so I was surrounded by youth leaders and a pastor and a church community that were totally accepting of me. And uh, there was no question in my mind, but by the time I was baptized, particularly after this experience with Jimmy Boyle, um, I was ready to be baptized. And, and strangely, I was baptized knowing that I would not be perfect. I don't think I was baptized into some euphoric, although I did let God badly down on the day of my baptism. I was riding to church and I had a brand new white shirt and a man going past on the bus decided to get rid of his load of well-chewed beetle juice that had been in his mouth for an hour or so and he spat it out the window. I left a blot on my back about the size of a dinner plate and I think I pursued him in... Uh, inappropriate languages, about three different languages, and the whole bus rocked with language, uh, with laughter. So I, I had a test on the day that I was baptised, but we survived that. <laughs> now, tell me about your wife. I'd be nothing without like? my wife. What's she like? Uh, Sue. Uh, Sue was born in Taralgon in Victoria, uh, but grew up on a pineapple farm at first and on a dairy farm. Her father was a, a cripple. And mother and three girls ran the most efficiently run dairy farm in the district. There wasn't a weed. If they ever wanted to go to the beach, they had to spend the day lopping weeds before they went. It was a hard life. And uh, there was not much about cows that Sue doesn't know. And she has said that she'd be quite happy if she never saw another one in her life. <laughs> uh, but she has supported me with coming up to 46 years of marriage. I met her here at college. And uh, I was as soon as I saw her, I thought, I'm going to change your surname to Hammond. Uh, she laughed at my silly jokes, so that was a good start from my point of view. But uh, she's been, she's a very quiet person, and she's not up front, uh, but she's very, very faithful and extremely loyal. Extremely good principles wife. You could never catch Sue gossiping or telling tales. Uh, she comes from an Irish background. Her ancestors were carefully selected by the best judges in Ireland. <laughs> and she's got that Irish temperament, so you don't walk on her. Uh, but she's a wonderful uh, grandmother to her children, and uh, I just couldn't imagine life without her. What are her interests? Uh, she loves working in the garden, and she loves looking after her children. And uh, she has spends an hour every day and she's uh, uh, transcribing the Bible. And she takes notes, and she has a little desk in a quiet corner of the house. And I think that is probably her most uh, precious time of, of, of the day. Mm. Tell me about um, your Christianity and your teaching. Give us a little bit more detail about the relationship that you see between the two of them, particularly in relationship to your own life. Um, I found teaching extremely fulfilling. I, I couldn't have imagined doing anything else. I've always felt a calling to preach, 
uh, and to teach. Uh, but to start a day uh, with a, a bunch of school children, whether they are kindergarten or, or early high school or senior high school, and talk to them uh, eye to eye about their issues and what's what's good for them, and and to see the the look in their eye of enjoying learning, you can see it going in, and that they want to contribute to. Barry, is there a better job in the whole world? I actually got paid for doing this. I think if you're doing something that you really love, it's um, it's um, it's really great. And I think in terms of your professional life. It's important to love what you're doing, you know, because that motivation is is important in terms of enriching every aspect of what you do, your understanding of it. As you know, I've spent a number of years as a um, teacher and an educational administrator myself, mm. and the thing that I think I t- I've taken away from that experience is that you will never get a child to learn if you place them under pressure, make them anxious and stress them. So there's got to be um, a, a good relationship between the teacher. The, the student has to know and understand that someone appreciates them, has mutual respect. You, you demand mutual yes. respect. But at the same time, the fact that they know that you, you love them and are looking after their best interest draws out the best, the very best in them, I think. Yeah, well, they know that you love them. And if, if you don't, I have seen... Teachers spend a lifetime in the classroom, I think, to exact revenge, and they're hated for it. But if you if you love the children, uh, you love their company, and you love telling stories, and you love imparting knowledge, and you have a good dose of incipient immaturity, then you've got a wonderful career ahead of you. Mm, yeah. I think also the same applies to teachers who are under your care. I think you have to take the same attitude to your teaching staff as you do to your students. There's got to be mutual respect, but they've also got to know that you have their best interests at heart, and I believe that that schools run from the top, that a principal is there to establish the climate in which everyone can do their best, both teachers and students. Yes, uh, a teacher, a, a principal... Uh has a principal role, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you get a good principal and put them in a district where there's no students, they'll soon attract students. Probably the hardest role that I've had uh, is being principal of boarding schools. So I spent eight years doing that. That is really hard work because you have uh, students coming from homes that are sent there because their own school system and their parents and family have given up on them and this is the last resort and they really are hoping that you'll turn them around. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. But I have seen some wonderful turnarounds. Mm, I think that that for me is one of the most satisfying aspects of the teaching profession, to see the influence that you have on a young life that could go left or right and, um, and to help people to make the right choices. And one of the things I really appreciate about modern education is the emphasis on choice and cause and effect and and helping people to understand the consequences of their choices so they make better choices for themselves. I've always got to remind myself when I'm talking to a bunch of 10-year-olds, another 10 years they'll be calling you by your first name and they'll be your equal. Mm. And they'll remember how you treated them. Mm. They'll remember your attitude towards them. They'll remember whether you like them or loathe them. A lot of people forget this. These little kids are going to grow up and they're going to grow up quickly. 
and I'm now bumping into grandchildren of the kids that I taught. Yeah, that must be satisfying. It's wonderful. I wanted to ask you about your time in Fiji. You were principal of Fulton College mm. there in the 1980s. Tell me what it was like in, um, in the Fijian culture at that time. It was... Uh, it's good to bring up your own children in a different culture for a while. So for my family, it was good. Um, and we had students from 19 different countries and um, culturally getting them all to mix, uh, you had to work at it very hard. You couldn't just say we're going to have a sports day and Samoa versus Fiji versus Tonga versus Kiribati. Uh, I did it once in my inexperience and it wasn't a, a near riot, it was a riot and they were <laughs> going to punch each other's lights out and... and uh, I said, I'll never do that again. So you, you, you handle them very cautiously. You lean very heavily on your cultural group leaders to advise you. Mm. And I had to train them because they used to the boss being the final word. And for them to come and advise you, they feel it's disrespectful. So I had to try and teach them. If you see a problem coming, I'll be even more grateful if you come to me and have a chat. And they wouldn't come. So I would set aside a period each week where I would talk with a Tongan leader. I would talk with the leader from Kiribati or from Tahiti uh, or from Pitcairn, we had students from all over, and and you just asked them what's happening. Are there any problems? And I found that was very very useful in in keeping peace and calm on the college. But yeah, we loved our time there. We could see that they were building up to a coup, um, and which did happen just after we left. Mm. There was a, an inevitability there. Tell me about the challenges of moving around on your family. Uh, a lot of things that we valued in life have been lost and broken over the years. Um, I think uh, we moved house about 19 or 20 times. Uh, we made sure we came in from the mission field when our children were starting high school. Uh, I didn't want them to go through what, what we had gone through in adjusting again to another culture. So we, we moved from Fiji to New Zealand. We were there for uh, seven years. Um, and so their transition, uh, and each time they were into senior high school, we were there long enough for them to have every opportunity to get a good university grade. Tell me about your children and how things have worked out for them. Um, very well. Greg, our oldest, um, after I uh, had my mishaps with the neck and back, uh, he... Uh, he decided to do medicine um, because of certain things that he had witnessed in his own life as, as well as mine, but he'd been involved in a major accident where he'd kept his best friend alive long enough for the flying doctor to arrive. Uh, Greg, being like his father, was doing some bush exploring with a four-wheel drive and then come across a, uh, a head-on accident. And... Uh, that really affected him. He joined SES and then later ambulance and then did the GAMSAT exam and uh, did medicine and now he's got his letters in obstetrics and gynaecology. So he's done very well. He's got two little girls. Uh, Claire, our older daughter, uh, did midwifery and did it very well. She loved it and she's married and, and lives in Goulburn. And Felicity, our youngest daughter, is married and uh, 
Brad's a policeman and uh, they live in Kurumbong and uh, she is a very good photographer. So she specialises in baby photography, so I advertise for her, calling her the baby whisperer. <laughs> the baby whisperer. How, how did you combine your career, obviously a very busy one, with your family life? Did you take any special actions to ensure that you kept a balance between the two? Um, I tried to keep in mind what my father had done. Uh, he was extremely busy uh, doing a number of fellowships. He ended up with five of them and was extremely busy. But he made sure that when he spent time with us as children, it was really good quality time. You get some parents who can be with their children all the time, but a lot of it's not quality time. Um, and so in the early days, it was hard. I was going to university four nights a week, and we had three small children. I can remember going in one night, and Greg, who was about six, bawling his eyes out as I backed the car out the driveway to go off to uni. He, he wanted to play with me, and I got halfway to university, and I did the hugest, loudest U-brake, uh, handbrake U-turn, and went back home. I didn't go to uni for two weeks, and I just played with him. Uh, but when I got to doing my PhD, when I was putting in 15-hour days, the children were at the stage of having to study hard for senior high school, and they always felt that I was setting a good example for them and we'd all be studying together. And they discovered how useful their father was when it came to correcting essays and giving advice on how to get good marks. And so that really helped things along. But uh, it was a normal family, and uh, we found ways around making sure that our family time... The biggest blessing was the Sabbath. And the university staff just were amazed that I would knock off on Friday afternoon because I had my own office, and you wouldn't see me until Sunday morning. And they said, how, when you're under so much pressure, can you just forget about it? And I actually had them coming around to my house and knocking on the door on a Sabbath afternoon just to make sure that I was doing what I said I would, and they'd find me on the floor uh, listening to music or we'd off be out walking or going up in the Rohini Mountains in, in New Zealand. Um, and having the Sabbath, that was uh, a time that you would spend with the family and there'd be nothing to interfere with that. Um, every family in the world needs to have a Sabbath day. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Dr John about his perspectives on life and the challenges of being a Christian in a post-Christian society. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN that is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings. 
My guest is Dr John Hammond. We've been talking about John's early life. In the last part of the second program, I want to explore the wisdom that John has gleaned from his life as a Christian educator. But before we begin, I'm going to ask John to tell us his story. Now, this is a Bible story. We've explained before that John researches thoroughly stories from the Bible, and then he tells the story. So he's going to tell us one of his stories right now. Thanks, John. Thanks, Barry. I want to tell a story about a girl who was born into a prosperous home, small village, best part of town, happy family, and as she grew, obviously was a very pretty girl. And uh, you know what it's like in a church. You see young people growing up, and you, you just start to see them blossom. And one day they had a new pastor, and uh, he stood up and he noticed her too, but he must have been more interested in her body than her soul because he befriended her. And eventually he became intimate with her and uh, took something from her and uh, started on a track that was a very sorry one. Um, When a child has been sexually abused, often they... Uh, start to demonstrate uh, very promiscuous behavior. And it wasn't long before this little girl uh, had a bit of a reputation around the church. And can you get worse than that in a small town, in a small church? Well, it did. She became known in the village as being an easy person to get. She, let's put it literally, became the town prostitute. And you shake your head and think, this beautiful child, can she do anything worse than that? Well, she did. Uh, somehow she became involved in spiritualism. I've grown up in the tropics. I've lived in in Pacific Islands, and I know that a person's life can become totally degraded when you get that combination of sexuality and evil spirits. And uh, finally, she was in a complete mess, and she was a complete outcast. She left home. She went as far as she could go in the same country and still speak the same language. But Jesus met her, and he identified the problem immediately and simply threw out the devil. And one version of the Bible says that Mary Magdalene had seven devils cast out. Another gospel writer says it was the same devil seven times, but boy, was she grateful. And she idolized Christ. She wanted to get close to him, but the disciples had a a ring of safety around her. They weren't going to let him uh, get anywhere near her. And uh, But often, you know, when a person is on the periphery of a conversation, they can hear things that the others don't. And the disciples heard Jesus say, well, I'm going to set up a new kingdom. She heard him say, I'm going to die. The disciples heard him say, you will be the generals of my new kingdom. She heard him say, you're all going to clear off and leave me. And she realized that he was going to die. So she thought, if I can't get near him in life, I'll prepare for his death. Now, there was a party going on because the man who had caused the problem, he must have had a guilty conscience and become sick because he got leprosy and no one would touch him, but Christ healed him. And that was Simon, the Pharisee. And uh, we are told that he was the same person that first seduced Mary Magdalene. And when he was healed, he wanted to have a party. They're all invited, but not Mary. But with your imagination, you've got to remember that every village had an apothecary where they sold perfumes because they believed that a person's spirit would try to return for four days. 
And so they would keep the body sweet with perfume. And she goes to the apothecary and she asks for the very best perfume. And they probably showed her all the in-between stuff. And she looks him straight in the eye as only an ex-prostitute could. And she says, I want the very best. No mucking about. So he goes to the safe and he opens it up and he's not even going to let go of it. He puts it. He said, well, there it is. That's $40,000 worth a year's wages. She says, I'll take it. Well, he's a good Jewish shopkeeper. He knows how she's earned the money. But he takes it and she goes off and she's probably saying to herself, you fool, Mary. You're impulsive as ever. What have you done this for? And she takes it home. But the scenario is set because at the party, she's not invited. She's looking through the window. She sees that nobody has washed Jesus' feet. So she goes home and gets this perfume. And this perfume has come from the Himalayas, from the spikenard. And uh, to show you how valuable it is and how special it is, in 1922, when Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, he dug down 16 steps into blank earth, but he uncovered the steps and he came across a door that hadn't been opened for 32 centuries. Now, Barry, you try and imagine 3,200 years, there is a door and the seal is on it. Nobody has opened it in 32 centuries. He got into it. Oh, I'd love to have been there. And he goes through the various rooms until he comes to the burial chamber. And there was a pot, and inside the pot is a little jar. And if you go to the Cairo Museum, look for the little leopard with the pink tongue. It had spikenard in it from the roots of a little plant that grows up near the snow line in the Himalayas. And in his account, he says when he took the lid off, that perfume was still flowing out after 32 centuries. And there was this incredibly valuable thing in an alabaster jar that was never to be broken that impulsive Mary Magdalene brings along and she breaks it open and smears it on his feet and as the, the smell goes across the room, the conversation dies and they're all looking at her. You know who the first person to speak was? It was Judas. His keen nose, he smelled expensive perfume and he says... Oh, that money could have been used to feed the poor. This was the same man who was milking the common purse for his own needs. And the rest of the disciples who thought that Judas was pretty good, they were murmuring, saying, yeah, this is good. And he was Mary utterly embarrassed. The last thing she wanted was to be singled out for attention again, and the whole crowd was looking at her. And Jesus, he speaks up and he says, leave her alone. And he uses a word that's only used once. He said, she has done a kalos thing. The Bible says beautiful. You know, we try and define that word and redefine it and redefine it. When, when you and I were young, we used to say, oh, beauty. You know what kids say today? Well, wicked, I think, is one of the things. That means nice. And they're still trying to redefine that word. She's done a beautiful thing. You know, he was to die a few days later. And at that moment, Mary was the only person alive who fully understood his mission. It was Mary who followed him to the cross. It was Mary who stood at the cross. Mary was there when he was buried. And of all people ever born, just get this, just take a moment to savor it. Isn't it amazing that Christ chose a reformed prostitute to be the first person to reveal the risen Saviour.
And he said something about it because while we have been talking and while our listeners have been listening, we have fulfilled a prophecy from the Bible. And I'm reading it here. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 9, Verily I say unto you, wherever the gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And to me that is my favorite story from the Bible because Jesus chooses people not because what they were, he chooses them for what they will do for him. And it amazes me that Christ chooses people. He could get an angel sitting here and interviewing you. Boy, it would do something for your ratings. But he chooses simple, sinful human beings because when a human being can reflect the face of Jesus Christ to the world, it is a terrible rebuke to the devil. It is doing everything the devil said was not possible, that a human being can be Christ-like. That's what our salvation is all about. Mm. Imagine what the world would be like, John, if everyone looked at what we could be rather than what we are. In other words, if we saw the potential in the individual that Jesus saw in Mary Magdalene and we extrapolated that to our behaviour in the world, what a marvellous place it would be if we were all looking out for the interests of other people. Well, this is the problem with the world and the countless books you read on the power of positive thinking and how to be a success in life. It all dwells on the power within you. But Christ comes completely around the other way, approaches it from reverse and saying, I'm not worried about your past. I'm not worried about your education. I've had my eye on you since before you were born. And I'm only interested in what you can do in my name. Mm. And uh, it is very hard to be a negative personality. In fact, it's impossible when you keep that thought in the front of your mind. John, tell me about the person in your life who has influenced you the most. Uh, my mother and father um, were very, very powerful. I've had uh, some very good mentors in life, uh, and God has put some uh, wonderful people across my path. Uh, and I, I would pay tribute to some of our older uh, ministers and education directors, uh, many of whom have passed on, who just played a wonderful role at the right time. You know, when I first graduated, uh, our senior pastor in the district uh, was Pastor Eric Baum and his wife, Grace. Uh, they just took us and, and, and they were like parents to us. They, there's none of this, now this, and don't do that. And mind you, he had to tell me once or twice that uh, I was acting a little bit too much like a youth. Uh, and uh, and then people like Pastor J.B. Keith and Aubrey Mitchell and uh, people like Dr. Gerald Clifford, who who died last year, uh, who was our education director, um, and lecturers at college who were, who were very kind uh, a dean of men, uh, Don Bain, who took me aside and very gently pointed out that uh, just hang in, you'll graduate soon. And, uh, these sort of encounters uh, mean a lot to me because they come from uh, the lips and minds of people that I've always respected and I would take it from them. And there was nothing harsh 
although I did get one or two very harsh ones, but they were also given in love. And and uh, I think one of the best tellings off I got was from a farm supervisor in in Fulton when I uh, picked some of his crop for of cassava for visitors who suddenly arrived without clearing it with him first. He was infuriated with me, but. Out of that came a very, very strong friendship because we both had to bend a little bit. And I've had some wonderful mentors in life, some of them people that you wouldn't even imagine, people that God sends along at the right moment to uh, just to give you that support. John, this leads in, I think, um, to the whole question of transmission of Christianity from one culture to another. Obviously, these older mentors that you had mm. had a powerful influence on your life. We live in a post-Christian culture now. The Christian foundations of our society are not there in the way that they might have been 50 or 60 years ago. What are the great challenges that you see for Christian education in trying to make that transition from one generation to the next? And are we, are we actually accomplishing that? Uh, to your last question, yes, uh, but it's something you have to work at. Um, it's uh, 46 years since I started teaching and the increase in knowledge and the changes in society follow a logarithmic curve. It's, it's knowledge is increasing at a frightening rate. And uh, the way we approach knowledge is incredible. I mean, if uh, my, my computer breaks down, my six-year-old grandson will be standing there and we say, I'll oh, press that button, Grandpa, you know, get the thing going again. But uh, we live, as you said, in a post-Christian society. Um, that is glibly uh, explained and then you can go on. But uh, teachers in our school ha are having to uh, combat the, evolution, the theories of evolution. Uh, and it goes even deeper than that, uh, that there is uh, no God. Um, so the first thing you have to establish um, that the world was created by a God who loves us. You, uh, what I have discovered, that there was a period after the church went through a crisis in the early 1980s um, where our sermons no longer spoke of the soon return of Jesus Christ and they became very dry psychological expositions. And all of a sudden I discovered that our students in school were craving to be told about final day events. You can tell them there's no God. You can tell them things are going to go on for a long time, but they want to know. I believe that in every uh, human being, this might sound like a well-worn cliche, but there is a God-shaped vacuum. There is something innate to every human being that believes in a higher power. Um, I had a debate at university where I got launched into against my choice. It was just announced that I was going to debate as to whether God exists or not. And I was warned that the lecturer who was a, and a professor was going to absolutely demolish my, my, my logic. And, uh, and I said, he said, oh, she hates God. And I said, well, that's a good start because if she hates God, she at least knows he's alive. And he said, don't be too smart. Your, your day is coming. And I was petrified. I had three weeks to prepare. And on the great day, the lecture theater was full. I was a postgraduate student by this time, and I had my speech all ready. And uh, this woman didn't turn up. 
we waited and waited and the professor made a few phone calls as to where she was. And then he came back ashen-faced and he said, oh, she uh, took her own life this morning. And he said to me, you've got all the time. So I said that God is not a person who can be put in a, in a, in a, uh, under a microscope and analysed. But I said he is there. And I told the story of, of the text in Luke where uh, God uh, gave us a promise that he protect us from the enemy and from, from serpents. And I told my own personal experience. Uh, but do you know what argument was the one that was the most convincing? I asked the students there, and there was a couple of hundred, if they believe that there are forces more powerful than us around us, uh, extraterrestrial forces, forces for evil. And they said, yes. And I said, well, I'm glad you said that because it's obvious that there are forces that we cannot really control. And I said, isn't it logical that these forces might be in battle with each other, that there might be... Here we go, coin a phrase, a great controversy. And there's a force between good and evil. Isn't it logical? I said, I'm not asking you to believe it, but isn't there a logic to this? And that there is a God who did create us. And I said, forget that then for a minute that he created us. I said, that might be sticking in your craw. But I said, just to try and imagine a supreme being who loves us, who's always been there. And I said, I cannot say this without saying I believe we are created because he loves us, but he's there and he is trying to shield us. And finally, this will result in a confrontation between good and evil where the world will never be the same again. And I said, you've only got to look at the way the world is changing. And this is in the, in, in, uh, the 1980s and before we'd uh, got into uh, the situation we're in today. And uh, they left a very somber group. And in the end, there was no one wanting to argue it. And so we, we deal with students who live in this world with tremendous pressure. And, uh, I mean, when you and I were young, if a couple lived together without being married, it would be the talk of the town. These days, it's the talk of the town if you decide to get married and then have relations. Uh, and, and the children in our schools uh, are living in this environment. Uh, Their access to the media, uh, they can access anything instantly. Um, there was a stage until 20 years ago where if a child, a young person wanted to know something, they had to go to an older person to get that knowledge. Knowledge is power. Today, they get the knowledge before we have it far more advanced than what we have. And with that knowledge, they are setting attitudes. And so uh, when you are talking, and I talk with, with student groups the whole time, they will listen to a story if it is the story of salvation, and they will believe you if they see that your life reflects what you are trying to tell them. And that is how God can reach them because he then moves in on their conscience. They have to make a decision. But giving it, making a decision these days is far more complex than it was in the days when everybody believed God and everybody believed in the judgment. We live in a, a world that is totally confused. How do we get the attention of students? How do we get the attention of this generation who's obviously facing the sorts of um, challenges to faith that probably no other generations had to face, at least for a long, long time? Uh, 
I tell them my story. That's all I can do. At the same time, it behoves me to be knowledgeable as possible about the issues that they face. Uh, if I'm totally ignorant of their trends, there's certain things I cheerfully admit to. I, I said here, sorry guys, but your your music just sells over the top of my head. But I said, I can explain to you why you listen to your music, which is postmodern, and 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 I will then challenge you to explain to me what postmodernism is, and I can explain to you how it works and how you are part of the postmodern or the post-postmodern uh, experience, and you don't even know you are. And that intrigues them, and so they are then prepared to talk to you if you can talk to them openly but informed. And that is the challenge for reaching young people these days. You, you've got to be informed. So it sounds like explaining to people the dynamics of their lives is probably a useful place to start? Helping, well, helping to understand the influences yeah. and forces on them? As long as they don't suspect um, there is a sermon coming up. Yes, I'm sure. And I said previously that if you, uh, uh, if you sermonise, you'll start to lose them. But if you let them pick up the points of the sermon, they'll come to the same conclusion. Mm. John, we're running out of time. Tell me something that you know about life from your experience of life, your knowledge of the Bible, that you think we all ought to know. For a start, um, one thing that I absolutely love uh, and it's part of my study is uh, that Christ is the center of every book in the Bible. Uh, he is featured from Genesis through to Revelation and I love the Messianic prophecies and I love to go through and, and to link uh, the stories in the Old Testament to the life of Christ, um, the book is 66 books written by a bunch of uh, different authors with different views, and that's what makes the the, uh, the the Bible so wonderful to me. It doesn't worry me if there are occasional contradictions. That indicates to me that they're all different people, and and, and God accepts them. I met a man on a plane flying into Los Angeles and he was sitting two seats away studying his Bible all night and I happened to be next to him in the line waiting to go through immigration. And I said, oh, I noticed you reading your Bible during the night. And he said, I noticed you reading yours too. And it soon came out that I was a Seventh-day Adventist. Then he asked me a wonderful question. He said, uh, why are Adventists different? And I, I was waiting for the question because I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because Jesus Christ was. Well, that just about stopped him in his tracks. And I said, uh, uh, Seventh-day, Christ worshipped on the Sabbath-day. He never once said, uh, abandon the Sabbath-day. And his father said, remember the Sabbath-day. That lasts forever. I said, he was an Adventist. Uh, because he is the advent uh, and the state of the dead. And, you know, he died and he knew nothing. And I went through this. In fact, when we finally got to the immigration counter, the man called me over and he said, I've been watching you. You've been having a Bible study with that man for 40 minutes as you went up and down. Oh, I said, you were supposed to be doing your work. Oh, I said, I'm trained to look for the unusual. 
And he asked me, what were you on about? And I said, oh, I was telling him why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, because Jesus was. He closed his counter, and we talked for another 20 minutes, stamped all my paper. He said, anyone that comes in to talk about the Jesus Christ is welcome, and welcome to the United States. And he called a lackey from over the other side. He said, you take this man, pick up his luggage, and escort him out into Los Angeles. And uh, to me, uh, being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian is just the most logical thing in the world. The Bible, when we get to the kingdom of heaven, we will be astounded, shocked, and ashamed to see how how lightly we've treated it from time to time. Mm. You mentioned a favorite passage for the family was the one in Luke. Do you have a personal favorite that's different from that? I do, and that is in uh, Third John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That is my favourite text. Mm. John, it's been really great talking with you today. As our custom is, I'm going to ask you now if you'd like to uh, offer a prayer as we close this mm. conversation today and the series of con- the, the series of two conversations and um, with a prayer and with a focus on, again, those people who may have had the sorts of experiences that you've had and you know what they feel like and the sorts of things they've had to be, had to go through in their lives but with a special prayer for them as we yeah. as we close our conversation let's pray dear father we have had a wonderful time talking and i have had the cathartic experience of telling about my life's journey and there are many people listening who have not had that privilege dear father i just pray that each person listening will have the opportunity to express their love for you. May you just grasp that you are part of God's salvation. He has chosen you since before you were born. You have gone through life's experiences so he can use you. And I just pray a special blessing at this very second. May you feel that peace that passes understanding that you are secure in the knowledge that Christ has paid the price for you. You have been redeemed and he wishes to use you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. My guest today has been Dr. John Hammond. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.